The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles, if you would now, and turn to Genesis chapter 22. And I am most happy to return to this passage of Scripture this morning. One of my favorites in, in the Bible. It's a great passage and one that I have termed the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And that's because this particular chapter is so sweeping in its description of the core elements of the Christian faith. The major doctrines of the faith are are seen in this chapter, if we care just to do a little investigation and try to dig them out. Uh, Here we see that God is presented to us as the God from eternity. And this chapter, even though you might not recognize it at first, tells us about the wonderful plan that God had from before the foundation of the world that he was going to send Jesus Christ into the world to save us from our sins. It stretches all the way from eternity past into eternity in the future with also a picture of the resurrection of believers at the end of this world, at the end of time. Now we study both the Old and the New Testament so we can put this picture together so we can come to a better understanding of what God has done in the plan of redemption. And we learn that things that God does do not happen by chance, but that God has a plan and a purpose for everything that happens. In the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, it says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. That statement explains to us that God has a purpose in everything, that everything is under God's sovereign control. He is the Almighty God. God acts. God does not react. A few weeks ago, there was an article in the Tabletop magazine about the importance of how that we interpret the Bible. Some say that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is entirely the Word of God, and every word written in the Bible is God's Word. And then there are some who say that the retelling of the events of the uh, things that are in the Bible, that is God's Word. But then when you come to other parts of the Scripture where it explains those events, that those things are the words of men, that they aren't the Word of God. That is actually what we call the difference between propositional truth and truth revealed by the revelation of events. And in this passage, we certainly do see emphatically that it supports propositional truth that we can't understand the significance of what happens in this chapter unless the Bible in other places should explain to us what is going on here. And so when the Bible explains Genesis chapter 22 and what these things represent, we have the Word of God uh, for us. Otherwise, we interpret these things according to our own opinions. We don't want our own opinions mixed with the Word of God. All of this Bible is the Word of God. Now, to show you a demonstration of that fact of how the Bible supports propositional truth as the means or proper means of interpretation, we can take another look at the first part of the message from last week and uh, in that outline. And our discussion began with the types that are in this story, the types of the story. And as I told you last week, types are representations of great truths, that types are figures uh, of, uh, of great truths that would come later. So we have types in this passage, truths that represent antitypes. That's the other side of it. What the truth represents is the antitype. Now Genesis 22 has so many of these types that we could say this is the Bible's greatest example of how types, antitypes work. Now, last week I pointed out to you several of the types that we find in this, uh, in this particular chapter. And just to mention those to you briefly again before we go on, we saw uh, in verse number 6 that Abraham and Isaac, the father and the son, walked up Mount Moriah together. That is a type. 
That is a type of the agreement between God the Father and God the Son. Before this world was created, that there would be a plan that Jesus would come into the world to save us from our sins. And so Isaac and Abraham become types of God the Father and God the Son. And the antitype is that covenant of redemption that exists between the Father and the Son from eternity past. Then in that same verse, we saw how that Abraham took wood and he laid it upon Isaac. And that was a type of how that Jesus would take his cross and carry it up Calvary's mountain. And so we have the type, antitype, that's going on in that particular place. We also see that how Abraham took a torch. And Abraham used that torch to light the fire. And the torch, the fire, is emblematic of the judgment of God that would fall on Jesus Christ. And that judgment that fell on Christ was worse than all that he went through on that day on Calvary. It was worse than the beatings that he took. It was worse than the nails that were driven into his hands and to his feet. The worst thing was when God judged him because sin was on him. He was bearing our sins on the cross. And so the type is the fire. The anti-type is the judgment upon Jesus Christ. And then there's also this marvelous type of resurrection. Abraham told his servants to wait. He and Isaac would go up the mountain and they would worship alone and then they would return. Now, the clear explanation of that is found, of the type is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, where it says that Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. There are actually two antitypes here. We have a type of the resurrection of Christ, we also have the type of the resurrection of believers. That's the type antitype. And so we see these events in Genesis chapter 22, and we see propositions that explain these events in the New Testament revelation. That is the Word of God to us. Explaining the meaning of what happened, that is also the Word of God, not just the actual event itself. Now I want to move on from this type antitype dynamic to the next point of our discussion. As I told you last week, this is a two-part Father's Day sermon. And in this part, I want you to see the application of how Abraham's faith is a model or that it is a type for your faith, especially a type for a father's faith because Abraham was the father of the faithful. So our next observation then is the testing in the story. First of all, we talked about the types that are in the story. Now we want to look at the testing. And so if you'll look at verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Now we're, of course, reading from the King James Version, and we're hit with a very disturbing word in this verse. The Scripture says that God tempted Abraham. Abraham. Tempt is an ominous word. Almost all the time when we use the word tempt, we use that in the evil sense. We never want to fall into temptation. We don't want to be tempted to sin. Here it says that, that God tempted Abraham. That's a very disturbing word. And it seems that there is a contradiction between Old Testament and New Testament about this word tempt. Because at this point, we know about what James said in, about temptation in, in James chapter 1. There he said in verses 13 and 14, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So no one can say that he is tempted by God to do anything that's evil because God never tempts anyone. However, earlier in the same chapter of James chapter 1, he said in verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or many different types of temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Well, clearly there's something going on with that word temptation. Temptation is not good. God does never, never tempts anyone. And yet, on the other hand, it says here that you are to be joyful when you fall into temptation because when your faith is tried, it works patience. So, in other words, it helps you to endure hardships. 
Now in Genesis 22, there's also something going on with the word tempt. Now comparing that to James, tempt then must have two different forms of meaning. God tempted Abraham, but he didn't tempt him to evil. So the key to the interpretation is to understand that in this case, the word tempt actually means a test. That God was putting Abraham to a test, and it was a test to demonstrate the strength of Abraham's faith. Now please understand this, that God knew exactly how strong that Abraham's faith was. He knew what Abraham would do. The person who didn't know how strong his faith was, was Abraham. He didn't know yet that he could trust God implicitly, that he could trust God to do whatever he said to do, and it would always turn out right that God, whatever God says, that's what we're supposed to do, are supposed to do. That's what God was testing Abraham over so he could realize this, and so he put him through this unbelievable task, asking him to do something that Abraham thought that God would never ask. Now, when he passed that test, he learned that there was nothing that he couldn't turn over to God. He knew following God implicitly in every detail would never be bad, though he couldn't see the end from the beginning. Only God knows that. Only God knows it as he sovereignly guides us through life and brings us to the place that he wants us to be. We don't always understand the path that God wants us to walk in, but we trust God that he's always right because he is the omniscient God. He's the all-wise God. He'll lead us to the place where he wants us to be. Now, this is actually the first time in the Scriptures that test or tempt is used this way. The Hebrew word here is nausaw, and it's the first time that it's used, but it's by no means the first time that Abraham was put to a test. John Butler, in his biography of Abraham, says that Abraham went through at least 25 tests, and he... Uh, alliterated those for us. I'm not going to read all 25 for you, but just to give you a sampling of the tests that Abraham went through, he went through a falsehood test. That test, Abraham failed. That was the test of lying about Sarah being his wife. There was a forgiveness test. Would Abraham forgive his greedy nephew Lot and, and to come and rescue him when he was captured by an evil king? There was a fatherhood test that Abraham went through. Would Abraham trust God for a son? Or would he give in to that evil scheme of Sarah to take Hagar and have a child by Sarah's servant? There was a friendship test. That was a test of Abraham when God sent two angels to speak to him. There was a farewell test. That's when Abraham had to throw Hagar and Ishmael out of his house and to wait for the son that God promised. Now, those tests in Abraham's life go on covering the entire span of Abraham's life. Uh, it, it started at the time that Abraham was called out of Ur, and God never stopped testing him through his whole life in order to build his faith. And there were many tests that Abraham went through, but the greatest one that we read of is the one that we find here in Genesis chapter 22. Would Abraham take his beloved son and would he sacrifice him on that altar as God told him to do? No one had ever been put through such a pressure-packed test. And when Abraham passed that test, it caused his faith to be the faith that is recognized as the greatest faith in all of the Scriptures, with one exception. And that would be the faith of the Son of God Himself, who trusted God the Father, that if He came to this world and gave up His life as a sacrifice for sin, and died on the cross, that His Father would raise Him from the dead and bring Him back to His exalted place in heaven. Now some say that Abraham's life was spent in the school of faith. That God was continually testing him, just like you go to school, and every subject there is, there's a test. You're continually being tested. And people say that Abraham was in the school of faith for his entire life. And the reason for that is because God kept building his faith. Some of the tests, he failed. And in those failures, he learned why he should have trusted God. And then all the successes that he had helped him to come to the place that he knew that he could trust God in the greatest of all tests. Now I want you to understand that this has a point, that there is an antitype to be found in you. You are also tested, 
Abraham is not the only one in Scripture that was tested. The Bible is full of men and women that were put to various tests about their faithfulness. You read in Hebrews chapter 11, those heroes of the faith and how they were tested by God and they remained faithful to God. And then you read church history and you see throughout the history of the Lord's church the persecutions and all of the opposition and everything that came against the people of God and how they were persecuted and killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But they remained faithful and because they were faithful, we have a church today. That's the importance of passing test of faith. And so it's very important that you understand that God will also test you. The school of faith is one that you're never going to graduate from in this life. God is always testing His children. Over and over He puts us to test. And He does that in order to sharpen us and to increase our faith and cause us to depend upon Him and come to the place that we can endure the very worst that the world can throw against us. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. So not only are you saved by faith, it says that you are to live by your faith. That salvation is not just a point in time when you receive Christ, but salvation is something that is ongoing as God puts you through the test and tests that faith, and you are to live by that faith every day. And what that does not mean is if you fail a test, that God is going to abandon you. You're not going to lose your salvation because you fail a test. Oh, God is sure. God is always with you in your failures. And what God always does, He restores the child who fails. The psalmist wrote, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Now, my purpose today is to show you why God puts you to the test. Why does God test your faith? To live by faith is actually being able to put all of your confidence in God. And to reach the place where you can put all confidence in God is an, it takes an extreme amount of training. It isn't easy to develop that kind of a faith. Not a totally dependent faith, but it is possible. And Abraham shows us that it's possible. We can trust God in everything. Now, going back to that passage of James chapter 1, James said that the trying of our faith works patience. The word patience is translated from a word that means endurance. It's also a word that means perseverance. Perseverance is a great Bible doctrine. God expects His children to persevere. But you don't need to worry about it in this sense, that your ability to persevere comes from God Himself. God is the one who enables that. God is the one who makes you persevere. And this is how God does it. He does it by building an enduring faith. His means of accomplishing His work in us in this area, the means is through multiple series of tests that He puts us through in order to build us up and make it possible for us to bear up without losing our faith entirely. For example, people wonder how Christians can keep their faith in God when bad things happen to them? How does a Christian remain faithful and trust God when a child is sick, when a child dies? How does a Christian remain faithful when he's gone through his entire life trying to serve God, then he comes down close to the end, maybe, and he finds out that he has cancer? The doctor says, I'm sorry, but you've got cancer, and you've got to go through this. And the world wonders about this. How does a Christian not lose his faith in God? Why doesn't God stop that kind of thing? These things are all tests that God puts us through. And what we learn about these tests is how God is merciful and gracious to us, and He has something better for us. The world wonders, how do you do this? How do you go through that kind of misery without shutting down completely and being bereft of any faith in God at all? But Christians do it because we know this, God has strengthened us through many lesser trials. God has never abandoned us. God has never let us go. God has never let us down. We can always count on Him. A Christian learns that. Even through many of the tests that we go through that may be unnoticed at the time, God is building up our faith, slowly strengthening us to endure the worst. James said to be joyful when these trials come, when God is testing you. Don't sweat them. Don't agonize over them. God has a reason for them. You don't always know the reason why. You don't always see the end from the beginning. But eventually, you'll see what it was for, and then you'll rejoice 
in the trials that have prepared you. Oh, Christians have seen a lot. We know there isn't a time that God has forsaken us. David went on in that 37th Psalm to say, I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Then David goes on in the next verse to tell the result of a life that has lived for God. That the man who does that, who is faithful and trusts God, he turns out to be a merciful person. He says in verse 26, he is ever merciful. That's talking about the man. He is ever merciful. He lendeth and his seed is blessed. In other words, this man learns the character of of God, He begins to act like God. And this is what try God is trying to do. He's trying to make you like Him. It's to get you to the place that you live by faith, that you act like God in your kindness and your generosity and your compassion and your mercy. All of those characteristics are built by our faith in God. So do you see why God keeps building your faith? It's to bring you to the place that you are like Him God uses this as a means of our sanctification. He has many means. This is one of them, testing us constantly in our faith. So that day might come when you have cancer. The day may come when a child dies. Parents do not want to outlive their children. And this is one of the reasons why what God asked Abraham to do was such a hard thing. Parents do not want to outlive their children. And God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, God does not bring evil into our lives through the test that he gives. The best possible outcome is always waiting. You keep passing tests and you find out that there's nothing in this life that can throw you. And you might ask, well, why does God do it? Why, why doesn't God make it easy on us? Why put us through all these things? And the answer is that you would never learn to depend on him if he didn't. You would never think about God if he didn't do these things. You'd never think that you need God. You see, God doesn't want our love for him to grow cold. And he keeps the test ongoing to show us that we can count on him to provide. And with every test that is passed, there is a reward waiting in heaven that is far more magnificent in its joy than the test was in its misery. Now, I want us to consider for just a few minutes the many objections that must have been going on in Abraham's mind. God told him to do this, but human reasoning says what God said can't be right. God would never ask something like this. It can't be right. Is it better for us to try and correct God and what he puts us through, or is it better just to go ahead and do what God says? Now, the first objection I've already mentioned just a few minutes ago, that God said to Abraham, take your only son, take him, and sacrifice him. Is there anything that's more contrary to the character of God than this? Human sacrifice? Would God ask such a thing? What a horrible thing that human sacrifice is. It devalues human life. Oh, we're, we're good at that today, aren't we? Devaluing human life. God doesn't devalue human life. He would never ask anybody to sacrifice a child, would he? In fact, God took the kingdom away from Israel because they did some of these things, because they went into the horrible rituals of pagan religions. Evil men sacrificed their children to gods like Molech and Baal and Ashtoreth. No one can imagine how wicked that that was for a man to take his child and put him into the arms of an idol and strike up a fire underneath of that and then burn that child. The smell of the burning flesh and the screams of that child were horrible. And yet men would do those things. How can a person do such a thing, we think? But Satan is able to put those kinds of things in the human mind. In our human heart, there's the ability and the probability of doing the very worst that is imaginable. If we listen to Satan, we'll do it. And we say, we're past those things, aren't we? But then we look at the genocide of ethnic cleansing in places like Bosnia. We consider the Holocaust of World War II when six million Jews were sent to their deaths in gas chambers and 
had to endure horrible medical experiments. And now we've come to the year 2016, and we say, we're past that, aren't we? The human heart is not that dark anymore. We'll never do anything like that again. And yet we get an Internet feed, and in that Internet feed we see somebody from ISIS taking an innocent person and cutting his head off in the name of their God. Satan is capable of making people do such things. So could it be then that this word came from the God that Abraham tested, that he is to sacrifice his own son? Is God who is righteous, can he ask such a thing to be done? That objection is in Abraham's mind, and yet he obeyed God. He knew that God must have a plan that would finally show itself to be right, because God never tempts to evil. God himself cannot be tempted to evil. And so Abraham believed God. And then what did God do? He stopped the knife. He ended the trial. And he showed all future generations what real faith looks like. If Abraham had disobeyed God, would that truth be known? Would we ever see the picture that is given in Genesis chapter 22, how that Christ would become a substitute who would die in our place, even as that ram substituted for Isaac. What a stunning way this is of teaching that truth. It was a visual demonstration that's way over the top. I can't invent illustrations like that. God does it. God knows how to do it. And in that, we see how truly gracious that God is, that he was willing to give his son. He didn't spare his own son, but sacrificed him for our salvation. And what comes out of this is the exaltation of the merciful God. Now we notice that the idols that men sacrifice their children to never stopped to sacrifice. Not once did they stop the sacrifice. The children always died. Because the God of the imagination is put there by Satan who always demands death. He never saves anyone. And yet there are sacrifices that go on to Satan in the lives of people every day. And then Abraham must have had an objection about the promise. This really put the stamp of doubt on what God asked him to do. God promised that Abraham would become a father of many nations, and the way that he would was through this son that God just told him to sacrifice. So what's he going to do if he kills the son? And then what was going on in his mind concerning his own love for Isaac? Now remember how Abraham had already been through an unnamed test. He was told to cast Ishmael out of his house. Get rid of Ishmael. And don't think for a moment that Abraham did not love that son. He loved him. He grew up in his house. And yet Abraham had to throw him out of the house to wait for the son of promise that God said is coming. And now here he is. He has Isaac, who is the real son of promise, whom he loved even more than he did Ishmael because he was the son of his beloved wife, Sarah. And now God says to Abraham, kill your son. That one, the one that meant more to him than his own life. And then... There's the problem of Sarah. What is he going to tell Sarah? Sarah didn't have the same faith as Abraham. It wasn't as great as Abraham's. Remember, she laughed when God said that she would have a child in her old age. So how is Abraham going to explain to her what he was about to do? And you notice the text doesn't say that he said anything to Sarah at all about it. I don't think that he discussed it with Sarah. I think he knew what kind of an argument would ensue if he did. So I strongly think that there's no discussion here. But I do know this, that if he came back without Isaac, and now he has to explain why there is no Isaac, there's no consoling Sarah. I mean, how much is she going to hate Abraham if he took her son, a young man probably of about 17 years old, and left him burning on the embers of an altar, and Abraham comes home without her beloved child? How much would she hate Abraham because of that? You know, I kind of think that it would have been like the story of, of Jael and Sisera, that Abraham would be asleep at night, and Sarah would come and take a tent peg and drive it through his temples and nail his head to the ground if he had killed her child. Oh, there must have been scores of objections that were in Abraham's mind. But... Here's the example that the Bible says that Abraham is to us. In Romans chapter 4, it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, 
giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Can you imagine Abraham doing this? Giving God the glory in the trial? He did because he was fully persuaded of what God promised that he would do. And what did God say he would do? Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. This is what faith is. It's believing in God's promise that he's able to perform. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We don't know how God's going to do it. We can't see how God will do it. That's what faith is for. It's the evidence of things that we can't see right now. It's the evidence we believe that God will perform. So multitudes of objections. No explanations from God why he would ask him to do this. No consideration for how endeared that Isaac was to Abraham. No consideration that the promise might end. No thought for how Abraham would be seen in the eyes of his enemies. Abraham would be seen as a man who sacrifices his children to some crazy God. Well, there's no way to explain why did Abraham believe God? It's only because of this. Faith. Only faith. It's faith that was greater than all of his objections. And friends, that's what God requires of you. Why? Because he wants to teach you a lesson about the power of faith. What you can actually do through faith. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Don't think that you can meditate deeply enough and that you can have faith to take Mount St. Helena and cast it into the Pacific Ocean. You don't really need to see Lake County all that bad. God's not going to, give you, God going to do that for you. What Jesus is talking about here, he's using hyperbole to show us that there's nothing that can stop faith. That faith does not have any limitations because faith is given by God. It, consumes, it has within it the abilities of all that God can do. So we can always trust God. We, we can't... We can't Put human limitations on the spiritual principle of faith. Faith is a supernatural act of God that's never limited. And so that means that there is no human problem that you face that your faith cannot overcome. Now remember that God has an end in view, and He will take you as far as in your faith He wants you to go. If you have faith like Abraham, can you imagine that you would be defeated in any test that God would put you, on, put you through? God wants all of us to have that kind of faith. But most importantly, He wants fathers to have that kind of faith. On a father is put all the responsibilities of family. A father stands responsible for the spiritual welfare of his family, of his wife, and of his children. A man needs this kind of faith to raise a generation that believes in God. A few weeks ago on Wednesday night, we'd just finished up the fundamentals class. And it was, in one, it was one of those nights when we, the, the attendance was really dismal. I was teaching on the church, and I was reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which is the memory verse for that lesson. And there God said, Paul wrote, let us consider one another, or the author of Hebrews wrote, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And I commented that Bereans make a very poor showing that we could be like these Hebrew Christians. In the next chapter... It goes on to speak of great faith. It talks about the Hebrew uh, heroes of the faith in chapter number 11. Do you think it's possible to get to chapter 11 without going through chapter 10? I doubt that's possible. I don't think it's possible that we could have the faith of Hebrews 11 when we put so much of what we want to do in front of God. And yet we call ourselves people of faith. How can we be people of faith when we want to hear 
about the God that we claim to believe. Abraham was in the school of faith. It appears that many Bereans have dropped out of the school of faith. But you know you haven't because God's testing you in that. What are you going to do? Are you going to attend your church? Are you going to listen to the Word of God? Are you going to come and hear? Or will you stay away from that? What kind of faith do you have? So maybe God is testing to see how great your faith is. When you walk up to the mountain, do you move the mountain or do you walk around it? You know, I trust God because of what he's already done. And that's why Abraham trusted God. It was because of what he'd already done. Abraham said, go. Or God said, go. Abraham went. He said, Abraham. And Abraham said, behold, here I am. The question is, when God calls you, are you going to say, here I am? Or are you going to say, I'll catch you a little bit later? And as it usually goes, when you respond in delay, later never comes. Now, thirdly then, I want us to look at the trusting in the story. Abraham gave up all the objections. All of these complaints must have filled his mind. But the Bible doesn't lay them out as I've just had. But we do know that in the response of faith, Abraham was not superhuman. Abraham was a man with physical strengths and mental capabilities that are not different from ours. This is why God lets us peek into the results of many tests that Abraham went through. God lets us see the warts of the heroes of the faith. He lets us see the times that they failed to let us know that these people had the same blemishes that you and I have. Their imperfections cause us to realize two things. That one, one that serving God is not impossible if we're willing to surrender to him. And number two, anything that we do right has been enabled by God and his power in us. Faith is God's gift, and that gift is there for us to use. Now, let me finish today by examining Abraham's absolute trust in God. First, he trusted God's plan. Now, many years before God told him to leave the place where he lived to go to a new home, This new place would be the inheritance of a great nation that would follow. A nation would descend from him, and this place would be their home. And that was a highly significant sub-point in the plan of redemption. Now, all of this is going on. The plan of redemption is being put into place. This is why all this happens. Abraham can't see any of that. The only thing that he sees for the moment is the personal desire that he has to have a child. That's all that he knows right now. He's going to have a child. God promised to make him a father of many nations. He must have children. Perhaps Abraham also saw a desire for greater wealth begin to unfold and come true. Maybe he had that desire. And God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep on blessing you. And it turns out that Abraham kept being blessed. Even in the test that he failed, Abraham was blessed. How does it work that way? I mean, uh, when he lied to Abimelech, instead of Abimelech harming him, Abimelech blessed him. Abimelech gave him sheep and oxen and a thousand pieces of silver. And Abraham lied to him. How does that happen? Now, surely God must have had something spectacular for Abraham when his worst mistakes turn out right. So God must have been setting things up for him. The plan must have been good when all of the ups and downs that he went through, God navigated it through it. I know that there are times that we fail. Our tendency when we fail is to get down on ourselves. And we, we, we want to make it up to God. We, we want to try to get God to like us again. We failed, so now we've got to work really hard to get God to like us again. And I want you to understand that God can't love you more than he already does. When you're his child, he can't love you more. And his love for you is not based upon your performance. His love is based upon who you are in Christ. You are in Christ and God can't love you anymore because he loves his own son supremely and you're in him. So he can't love you more. All the love that God can have for you is there in an infinite amount to God's ability. So one of the first things you have to learn in your testing is that if you fail, God is not going to abandon you. Abraham failed enough times that he could have said, 
I must not be the one for the job. God's going to look for somebody else. He's not going to use me. I keep failing all the time. But it was never about Abraham. It was never about him. It was about God's plan. And the same is true for you. It's never about you. It's all about God's power and God's grace that enables you to do anything that's done for Him. God does not hate you when you fail. Now, we don't seek to fail, of course. But failures can also teach us something about God's unique love for us. You see, when you fail, you find out that a God who you thought would abandon you didn't. That He still loves you. That He still lifts you up. And when you learn that, you learn to have a grateful faith that causes you even more not to fail. To seek not to fail. There are lessons in your failures. And if you don't learn the lesson in your failure, all they are is failures. Learn who God is and learn that in your failures, you can trust Him and be more determined than ever not to fail. Let me caution you here. I'm talking to believers. There isn't any promise here for an unbeliever. I can talk about faith all I want, and an unbeliever is never going to get any of this. An unbeliever can't claim any of this. This is for the children of God. For, an, for a believer, we find these kind of promises, like Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. The good work is that work of salvation that God begins in you and God is going to carry it all the way out. Despite the many times that you fail, God is going to bring you to the end of your salvation. God never stops working in a believer. His plan is to bring you to the perfection of Christ. Now, you might be a failure at times, but God never is. God is not going to let His purpose fail. You won't achieve perfection in this life. And your testing won't be over in this life. School is not out for you in this life. However, God promised that he would complete the work. He does that without fail when you are brought into eternal life. So Abraham was confident that God controlled the plan. Sacrificing Isaac was a step in the plan. God, God's plan was not derailed by it. Ultimately... God would receive the glory. As Romans says, Abraham glorified God when he took Isaac up on that mountain. He was certain that the death of Isaac would not negate God's promise. Isaac was going to rise, and God, God's plan would march on. Now, you have to see that this is how it works in your life. God has a plan. Now, despite what many have told you, and there are many people and many preachers who say that the plan of life is different for everybody. That God has a different path for everybody to walk. That's not true. God's plan for everybody is one and the same. And understand also, and get it into your head, that the differences that exist between you and other Christians and what goes on in your life are only incidentals. The plan for all of us is the same. And the plan is the glory of God. Your life is not about you. It's not about you. It's always been about God. It's always been about the glory of God. That's what the entire human race is made for. The glory of God. So, the plan in your life is about God, which means whatever impedes the glory of God in your life is the thing that you must surrender to Him. So do you understand this? Your job doesn't come before God. Your education doesn't come before God. Your family does not come before God. But you need to know this, that you can have all of those. You can have your job. You can have education. You can have family. You can have all of them for the glory of God. The Scripture says, and everything that you do, do all to the glory of God. Of God, So you never let these things conflict. You don't let job and, and, and education and family come in conflict with God. The first thing that you do is surrender it all to God. And it'll be for God's glory. Now I want you to look for just a moment at verse number 20. The exposition of this chapter often ends at verse number 19. 
But verse number 19 is not the end of the chapter. There's something very significant that happens at the end. Abraham learns in these next verses that Nahor, his brother back in Ur, also had children. One of those children was Bethuel. Now look at verse 23. And Bethuel begat Rebekah. Who is she? She became Isaac's wife. And so the plan goes on. Abraham had a son of promise. All the important events of verses 1 through 19 are going on. And other parts of the plan are all being put into place. Everything is working in the background to come together. And Isaac is not going to die because God's already preparing a wife for him. Now let me just say, you can trust God. You can always trust God. What you can't see and what you can't understand is God working all things for your good. You don't see what's going on in the background. That's what your faith is for. God doesn't let you see it because you need faith to believe what God is doing. God's always working things in the background. The things that you don't know, God is working out for your good. So you don't worry about the trial. You don't agonize over the trial because God already has a plan that's in place. All parts of the plan are going to come together. So you trust God for the things you can't see until God lets you see it. And Abraham lived long enough to see Isaac marry Rebekah. Then finally, we have the last observation, that he trusted God's provision. Let me take you back to verses 7 and 8. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Now go down to verse number 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh. That word means that God will provide. Provide is a great word. It comes from two Latin words, pro, which means before, and videre, which is the root word for video. So, provide means to see before what is needed. And this is why when Abraham raised the knife to plunge it into Isaac, that he was stopped. He was stopped because God saw before what was needed. There must be a sacrifice. And God never intended that Isaac would be sacrificed, and so another is needed. And this is when Abraham looked behind him, and there was that ram that was caught in the thicket. As someone had said, as they walked up that mountain, nobody ever noticed a ram caught in a thicket. I don't think he was there. I don't think he was there until Abraham raised that knife and God saw before what was needed. And so there was a ram caught in the thicket. And God was going to use that ram in the place of Isaac. He made provision before for what was needed. Well, this brings us back full circle to where I started at the beginning. Abraham and Isaac represented the agreement between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past. God had not yet created the world, but he knew what was needed. As a result of Adam's trial in the garden, God knew that only Jesus could undo what Adam did. Only Christ can remove the terrible effects and results of the fall and return us to favor with God. There aren't any accidents in God's plan. There, there is no plan B in case the first one fails. It always turns out right. Every part of it is perfectly placed. So as that confession of faith says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. You'll never see the whole plan from the beginning to the end. Not unless God should show it to you in his word. You'll never see it. That's what propositional truth is. I want you to understand, this is propositional truth. It takes the events that are in the Old Testament, and it helps us to understand why these things work the way that they do. Rarely are the steps of your life given beforehand. If they, if they were, faith wouldn't have any purpose. 
If they were, then you would go about mechanically trying to do everything that needs to be done and you would never think about God. God is too wise to leave things in your hands. Do you understand? God is too wise to let you be the decision maker. To leave things in your hands, there is never a righteous plan that you would ever affect if it's in your hands. And so the sovereign God wills what unchangeably comes to pass. Everything that comes to pass, that is God's plan. Only God can do it. So what you should never do is doubt God. It's foolishness to the highest degree to think that you can do better than God. The just shall live by faith. You trust God, and what you'll learn is that God's promise of faith will come true, and he will lead you to the place that he wants you to go. Always trust God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you that you are a God that we can trust. You are the only God, and that's why we can trust you, the all-wise, omnipotent God. We can trust you. Lord, I pray today that you would help us, that we would surrender everything in our lives to your glory, that we would understand that there's nothing that you can't do for us. There's nothing that, is, that limits us your mercy and your grace through the power of faith enables us to do all that you require of us. And so if our lives are meant to glorify you, then you will give us the power, the ability to do it. And the only reason that we don't do it is because we don't have enough faith to leave it all in your hands. How foolish it is to think that the sovereign God of all the universe does not know what he's doing. And we have to try to help him by doing it our way. Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to trust you. Help us to be men and women of faith, to have the same kind of faith as Abraham, that when we're tested in our faith, we do not fail, but we trust you implicitly in all that you ask us to do. Speak to our hearts today about this today, Lord. Draw us to you. Help us to be people of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.